0: My name is Kevin Lehan, and I am the screenwriter of this film. I haven't seen this film for, I would say, at least nine years, probably more. I caught it on TV a couple of times, and I would sort of watch a few moments, but I haven't seen it in such a long time. Of course, at the time when the film was coming out, and we were doing festivals and stuff like that, I had seen it over and over and over again I must have seen it about 40 times this sequence here this opening sequence with the meteorite coming into land this was added in post-production it wasn't in the script the script sort of opened with the fisherman on the Merry Widow as the, the boat was called in my script and they added this as sort of a title sequence and I loved it I remember being shown that in the production office and hearing the music as well Christian Henson's music and just feeling like, oh, this is, this is lovely. I remember debating with producers about this sequence. I didn't think we needed it. And there were a couple of other producers on the film who said that if this is not in the film, we are not backing it. They were so sold in it. But I felt like when we were dealing with money issues and we needed to sort of use every single penny that we could to get the best film on screen... That this sequence was extraneous you didn't need it and that it, it would be much better to ring fence everything that goes on in the pub and all of the main characters and what they're dealing with but i was overruled on that and this was a very expensive sequence and then it was heavily heavily compromised because of the lack of money and bad weather that we had at the time and of course they couldn't take the boat out of the harbor because of bad weather and the insurance been so bad so when i look at this i just think it's such a a compromised version of what I wrote that I don't think it's 100% necessary. And it has no bearing on the rest of the plot. So it was necessary for me in the script to sort of hook people. You only get about one or two pages to bring people in. But I think once you're making your film, the audience is not going to get up and walk out in the middle of it. That rarely happens. So once they've committed to watching the film, you have them. Just You don't need these sequences. And I was arguing as well with him. It's like, Tremors doesn't begin this way. Predator doesn't begin this way. You don't need to open with a big kill. But um, that didn't happen. So this is my least favourite sequence in the film. And it has nothing to do with the performances. And I know everybody worked hard on it. But I feel like I wish we had more of what was necessary later on in the film to deliver more on the concept of... Drunk People Fighting Aliens. Jeff Dicksmith. I was one of the 48 producers
1: on the film. And I got to say, when I read the script, I thought to myself, oh my God, this is a great script. This is the script. This is what we got to do. And I said to my business partner at the time, we're no longer working together. But I said to him, you know, check this out, read the first page and tell me this isn't a gold smash movie. We were bust after the movie the movies baby happy happy times
0: opening titles grabbers I watched Tremors an awful lot to stay within the right mindset while I was writing this I wanted something that was a good natured horror comedy that was playful and joyful and it was focused on the characters and I had a sense of Frivolity and camaraderie. But one thing I didn't take influence from Tremors about was the title. For some reason, when I watched the film, I thought that, and I thought it was a great strength to Tremors, was that they never explained the, the monsters and they never figured out what they were. Them being called Graboids, I didn't know that that was common knowledge. So I, f- I felt that I could call this film Grabbers and it wouldn't be too similar to Tremors. Ruth Bradley, she's so beautiful. Very talented as well.
1: We didn't make any fucking money. My producing partner, he blew his fucking brains out. If you can believe it. It blew his brains out when he saw the, when he, when he saw the finished film. He was destroyed. But, you know, that's the movies, baby.
0: Now you see all of the young people on the island leaving. And I specifically wrote that in so that we didn't have to deal with children. With the... the the premise of getting drunk because I thought that was going I think that's a bit heavy-handed I put that in the script and when it was mocked up I thought that's that doesn't look like an Irish sign and it looks too much like a sign from Jaws Richard lovely man
2: Simon Corcoran Richard Coyle Stanton on this motion picture it was a delight I'll say it was a very challenging challenging production uh, as well as being his stand-in, I was also required to do many, if not all, of his stunts. And there's an age discrepancy between us. I, uh, At the time of this production, I was 68, and that was quite challenging, you know. I worked on the picture for many weeks, not all of them, I had a a wonderful stand-in for myself as well. Midge was her name. She filled in for me during my hospitalizations, but it was really a remarkable time, and I have so many stories. I do have trouble recalling many of them because of the concussions.
0: Pascal here, Pascal's from Cork, he knew my Uncle Tony which was something that we learned in the hotel bar. Lovely man again. We had such an incredibly happy cast. They really all got on, and I think it comes true. I think it's one of the great strengths of the film is that the actors just had a ball.
2: Of course, this wasn't commonly known at the time, and they did try to hush it up, but we were all genuinely pissed. And it was just, you know, during the scenes, it was... Throughout the day, I've never saw a picture like it. There was a lot of gin, lots of gin. So there was a lot of tears, and the porter cabins. You couldn't get near them. There was a queue constantly for the porter cabins. People were in there and they were throwing up, and they were fornicating because everybody was fraternizing. And there were people in there trying to top themselves. That happened as well. There was a producer on the film who did try to shoot himself many times after most takes. Thankfully, it was a prop gun, but he didn't know that. And he kept trying to do it. And eventually, everybody got so tired of it, they just said, let him play with it. Because it was more of a stress reliever than anything, you know, trying to like squeeze a stress ball.
0: I remember writing this scene. You know, when you're writing a script, you're trying to convince yourself that you have something. And all these scenes I would write, they kept me going. I think I wrote the script in about six weeks and I hit a wall about four and a half weeks in and I sort of backed myself into a corner, deliberately wrote myself into a, a tricky situation because I felt like if I can create a dead end in the story and the characters are clever enough to get out of it, then that'll be satisfying on screen. But I wrote the script pretty much straight through in six weeks. Medge Mechanical
3: is my name. I was the, uh, I, was, I was standing for Simon. And I was also, I was also the wrangler of the alcoholics on the production. And that's what we affectionately called the extras in the film, because we wanted to go for a very small shoot. That was something that the director, he drummed into all of us. He wanted, he wanted absolute authenticity. So we casually referred to them as the alcoholics. And, uh, I thought, you know, a great way to bring some authenticity into the production would be to just round up as many alcoholics as we could. These were people, know that they were suspected to be heavy drinkers. They weren't exactly what you would call scientific alcoholics. But they were casual drunkards. They would drink themselves onto the fucking table. And there was nothing you could do about it. Like, we couldn't stop them once they had a sup of anything, they'd be gone. Up in the and they be just scuttled. And I thought, you know, should you God love us? Like, should we all have our complaints and we all have stuff going on? Like, and then you gotta do your best in this world. That's what I anyway. So I was trying to round them all up and give them a job. And uh, they were very happy as well. You know, they were delighted you know, to be out of the rain. And of course, that was another thing as well, is that uh, it was pissing down all the time. And uh, we manufactured that brain as well as uh, it actually happened.
0: So it was really a bollocks of a production. We rehearsed for about a week before we started shooting. And I remember talking to the actors and they were sort of saying that that's quite rare to get that. Richard had just done a film with Madonna and uh, he'd had that, but I think what benefited most from that week, it wasn't that we did any changes to the script. I was very, very lucky on this film in that we rarely made any major adjustments to the script and I was the only writer on the film throughout the whole production. So even when I was making changes, I felt a sense of authorship over them. But what we benefited most from the rehearsal period was that the actors got to see how each other was performing. And they got to accommodate their performance to get in sync. And there was a nice equilibrium that was found from all the actors by sort of rehearsing together. Oh, wonderful. Wonderful. We went through so many different alcoholics. Obviously,
3: the story is about that. And we found that, you know, the best way to do it would be to bring in all the locals. And we had no, no trouble at all rounding up many alcoholics. It was really fantastic production in that regard because you could pay them literally peanuts and they were just so happy to have any bit of salad food at all. We had implied over 800 I think by the end of it and none of them were harmed in the making of the film which I'm very proud to say and I'm very proud of my track record as an alcoholic wrangler on the production. Later on there was a sequence coming up where I uh, fall off a roof and I did that without a It wasn't planned, obviously. But, you know, these are the things you do to make the movies what they are, which is a wonderful experience for everybody involved in making them and if not, they're watching them. What's that? What is
4: that? That.
2: It's a hand in a claw position. It's a dead one of
0: those. See that moment there with O'Shea where he goes, what's this? It's a dead one of these. That was improvised. That was not me. It's a lovely moment. There's a few improvised moments in it. That's one of them and again look you can just tell that they're enjoying themselves they're, they're having the crack
1: the irish crews they're second to none you know they like to have fun these were the people that were recommended to us as the best of the best and i gotta say they were fucking animals they'd have like open fist fights bare knuckle boxing that sort of thing you know this happened all the time at catering the locals will come round. they put their bets on And the crew would beat each other half to death. You couldn't stop them. And the women too. They would claw each other's fucking eyes out. That was part of their culture, you know? We couldn't say no to that. I have a saying, and I say it to my wife all the time. I say, what goes on in this house stays in this house, okay? You know, we had a bombs guy come on set once. One of the money guys, he came down, he said, what the fuck's going on here? You can't do this. We're shutting this fucking thing down. And I said, okay, buddy, let me just have a word with some of the guys. I told a couple of the guys on the crew, and I said, you see that fucker over there? He's trying to shut this picture down. Never saw him again. <laughs> Neither did his wife or kids.
0: <laughs> we had terrible weather. Like, properly bitter Baltic weather where we were shut down for days and days because of blizzards. Like, you don't get that. And we managed to get it. And unfortunately, when you lose days on an independent shoot like this, you don't get extra days built into the schedule as a contingency. It's sort of you either get it or you don't. So we lost stuff out of the film because we we didn't have the days to shoot it because of Bad weather. But the cast all were like having a ball and I think it comes through on screen. I remember writing this as well. Oh, it's funny.
2: I remember going into the workshop to get fitted for the stunt padding that I was going to use for this sequence. And they said to me, Simon, would you like to see what the grabbers look like? Because they'd been working on these creature designs and I hadn't seen anything. I hadn't even read the script. And I said, oh, yes, please. And I turned around and I saw this thing and I thought, wow, that's hilarious. And they said, no, Simon, that's Midge. Now, in my defense, Midge was wearing a duffel coat. So it was very hard to make out what it was. And she's a woman of smaller stature. So she looked a little bit like Paddington Bear. And I thought that made perfect sense. Grabbers, little hands, snatching away at your Of course, Midge herself, she took that quite poorly. But she's a very unusual-looking woman. And later that day, we were doing this stunt coming up where... For some reason, I was asked not to perform the stunt for Richard, but for this other character called Cooney. And Cooney was to be murdered. He was to be pulled along the beach by this creature. And Mitch said, I'll handle the dune buggy, because she was the one that had rented it. She knew everybody in the town, and everybody was afraid of her for some reason. And I was being attached to this dune buggy with a rope. Because, you see, the grabber was going to pull me into the sea and drown me. And that wasn't what was going to happen, of course. We were just going to pull me along towards the beach. And I was all padded up, so it was all fine. And as I recall, they originally wanted to tie the rope around my neck. But Richard stepped in at the last moment, and he said, you can't do that because I need him to do my stunts coming up. And after a lot of debate, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, they agreed to tie it around my legs. And I was very happy about that. Midge was very keen to get going. And she was throttling the dune buggy. Encouraging everybody to hurry up, to hurry up. And as soon as the harness was attached, she put her foot down. I don't even think they called action. And we took off like a rocket. And we went right past base camp. And there was a lot more rocks on that beach than I think anybody was aware of. And we kept going, and of course a dune buggy, it can go up and over the cliffs, and that's what we did. Because we had to get the shot, and I have to commend Midge for this, she was very committed. We kept going and going and going, and I of course could only feel the wind, I couldn't see much, because I had to keep my eyes closed because of the dust, and the gravel. And of course, all I could smell was the diesel coming from the dune buggy, and the smell of smoke coming from my costume. I kept calling out to Midge, and she couldn't hear me. She was playing music, <laughs> but we did, did eventually. <laughs> <laughs> but we did eventually come to a stop in a car park, and I have to say I was very happy that I was padded up.
1: Eight years I was waiting for him to go down on his knee. Have you ever heard the like of it?
0: Bronagh Gallagher here. I was so so ecstatic that we got her for the film. I remember pushing the director, John, really hard. I was like, get Brona, it's got to be Brona, Brona Gallagher, yeah, please. And she's absolutely brilliant. She did a rehearsal with David Pierce, who plays her husband. And I wish that we had recorded it because it was all improvised. And they were being interviewed by the director and he was asking them questions about their about their relationship and their situation and how they felt about each other and stuff. And they were reacting in character and it was hilarious you know they were talking about her family it was her pub and he married into it and he's running it into the ground and all this kind of stuff and they were so quick so fast so funny and none of it was caught I'm a sea monster today
5: swear to god may I strike me down
6: you don't believe me not a bit. I am no liar
2: fuck <laughs> off you alright where is it? Bathtub. in your bathtub.
0: bath <laughs> I loved writing these characters. they're all kind of cork characters but they were then played by people from all walks of Ireland. I remember the table read as well just to hear people laughing about stuff that was not going to be in the film like my stage directions. They had to keep stopping in order to compose themselves to continue to read. You know, you write these things in a vacuum. You have no idea if anyone else is going to share your sense of humor and is going to enjoy what you find enjoyable. So to actually hear people reading it out loud and for them to be just cracking up, it was so gratifying. So in this sequence here, on the TV was meant to be the scene from Tremors, where the doctor and his wife are killed and the car is pulled under the ground. We couldn't get the licensing for it.
1: Look, there comes one of them now.
0: hear you. Here he comes now. Irene! Irene! What? Someone's at the door.
4: You... I'm not dressed.
6: All right. All right. That better not be Paddy and a stinking lobster.
0: He's being used as a lure. So I beat out as well the life cycle of the creatures and I thought nature is so fantastical but it's all rooted in something that is tangible and you can believe in. So I started adopting elements from other creatures like those fish that can crawl on land and I wanted these to be aquatic creatures and I thought, well, they can only come on land when it's raining and I thought, oh, that's good because... Welves come out when there's a full moon. Vampires come out when the sun goes down. And these grabbers only come out when it's raining. And I thought that's a nice extra element to to the mythology and the the character of these creatures. They lay their eggs in the sand on a beach, like the way turtles would. They come on land to lay the eggs. They begin as these tadpole-like creatures and then evolve into the full-size king grabber that we see. I remember writing that in the script and all that's left are her orphaned fluffy pink slippers. This pub now is a house. It was abandoned at the time that we were shooting there. So the outside was as you see it, but the inside was just derelict. And it's a really nice looking house now. White with lots of plants outside. The funny thing is as well is that pretty much all of what you see in the film is all located Hi. right around the pub. So the doctor's no. surgery office was 20 feet uh, uh, over the courtyard. Um, Smith's laboratory was 100 feet, you know, down the pier. So base camp, when we were set up at, the, I can't remember the name of the hotel, though. No, but you drive down to set and you could just walk between all the different locations that we were going to shoot in. So it was very convenient in that regard. But it was necessary as well because we had no time.
5: I hope you're not driving.
0: I remember, again, riding this and feeling quite pleased with myself because I think she says, um, you're riding a horse while intoxicated. And He's like, yeah, so the horse is sober. And, you know, you're right. I wrote the the thing in sequence. So, you know, I started at the beginning and I wrote all the way through. And I would just keep building more and more Scenes that I really liked, and then they impelled me to keep going and to make sure that you know I can't stop. No, you've got all this good material. This is this is good stuff, and it felt like up until that point my favorite thing that I'd ever written. Last drinks go straight to my head. Do you get this drunk every
5: night?
2: You know, just uh, high days and holidays.
5: Let's get you to bed. Mm.
2: Now you're talking.
0: <laughs> right. 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 Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs>
5: ah!
4: Maisie, McDonough and it my house that they actually used as... The uh, shithole that Paddy in the movie lives in. Eighty-five euro a day is what they were going to pay me. And I said, oh, that's grand. Yeah, you can do that. A few hours is all they needed for. I was delighted. I was absolutely over the moon until I saw the stairs after the place that they push up on screen. That was not the way my house looks at all. They turned it into a pigsty. I don't live like that. So the neighbors then saw that and I was scandalized. Scandalized, and they've not let me forget it. They've sent postcards round with pictures from the film. Send there's your house, look at you you dirty old bitch. And I can't guards. I have to. Many times I'd know who's done it, but at least Is them that could be doing it. Would I do it again? No, absolutely not. Not a chance. Even if they doubled the money, I wouldn't do it. And they keep showing her the RT. And I'd written in, I could play that said so many times though. Stop putting that shit on the telly because nobody wants to be put up with that. Nobody's all.
5: <laughs> um, do I have something to sign? Oh, yes, the big one. <laughs> it looks
3: like it should be nice. uh, we had a novel situation really? with seagulls. <laughs> they're a terrible nuisance of a bird, you know. And uh, for myself, they're quite fucking large. No. They're, they're almost like the size of a condor, you know, to an average person. And so for me, I was like shitting bricks. I remember I saw one of them eat a rat hole. And then he ate the rest of it, you know. And then he coming for me. And I'd be like, oh, Jesus Christ, like, we can be whatever that, yeah, yeah. I remember one day I spent a good two hours bathroom ball bearings at these boats. But they kept coming at me. They'd hunt you down, like. They're awful fucking creatures altogether, And I don't know why we put up with them we had to do something about it because these seagulls, they're very territorial. And they would circle overhead, you know. And uh, they would be shitting all day long. You couldn't get through a take, you know. And the are maker people. They'd be going fucking spare. So the continuity girl, she had a breakdown. And uh, people would go mad like they couldn't handle it at all and there's nothing you could do because we were filming there a harbour so you're bound to get seagulls you know but uh, there'd be hundreds of these birds so uh, I remember we all went down to the beach and we got buckets and buckets of stones and rocks and you know whenever they call cut we would start firing the stones at the seagulls but of course once you scare a seagull they end up shitting twice as much because it puts the fear of God into them and they just un- unleash everything. And this stuff will be falling out of the sky like paint. You'll be getting struck, you know, left, right, the centre, battled with stones and with fucking shit. But uh, it, was the best op- it was the best, you know, option at the time because we couldn't get hold of any firearms. We had a whip. And we had one of the production assistants, and his job was just to keep whipping the boards, you know. And there was a good thirty-foot whip, and he'd go around and he'd be he'd be whipping at the air. And we're like, "Go on, Tim, go on, get him!" And that 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 held that held them back, you know, because it was open warfare, and they were just they were fucking. Coming for you, you know, because I I think they saw us as like easy pickings, and they felt like oh, I'll have them, you know, and they had no fear of the us, like the big fucking puppets. So they be they be sitting on them all the tentacles, and they be just chewing away on it and shitting all over it. That stuff's like battery acid, you know. So I don't know what we did, but eventually the situation got started. And we we managed to go uh, and move on. But uh, for about a a good fortnight, we were just covered in shit.
2: I can't remember who it was, but somebody said we should go to the animal rescue centre and adopt some cats. Because what would scare off a bird more than a cat? So we took it in turns, and we went down, and I think we took about 40 cats out of the animal welfare centre. And that did have an effect, but not in the way that we expected. Because you see, seagulls, they're quite a big bird. And a cat, that's a nice meal for a seagull. So we lost a lot of cats. But what happened was once the seagulls had been satiated and fed, they left us alone. So we got more and more cats, and that's all that problem.
0: Lola Roddy, As Paddy. He was the first person cast. And I remember thinking he was going to be the most difficult one to cast because you can actually see Richard's breath here. It's so cold. It really was freezing. It was the worst winter that we've had in decades. It still hasn't been as bad since. Yeah, Lola was the first person cast he was going to be the most difficult one to cast because he would be a bit of a caricature. But he nailed it. And once he was cast, it was so easy then to um, build out everybody else around him because he didn't feel like a Paddy type character. He felt real, like you could bump into him and he'd feel like a real person, even though he's saying the most outlandish things and he's just this oblivious, uh, curmudgeonly character on the make, as we'd say. That he was such a gift for us. And he's a lovely man as well. Do you think that grabber thing could have anything to do with those dead
6: whales?
5: What makes you say that? It's
6: just a hunch, you know.
5: You get hunches now? I remember
0: him coming over to me and saying at one stage <laughs> that we had dropped a couple of shots. And when I heard that, I thought, oh shit, they can't lose that. That's vital to ensuring that everybody knows that the people in the pub have survived. And I spoke to the director. It was kick, Pollock and Scramble. You know, people are like focused on getting what they can get to the best they can get it as fast as they can get it and staying moving. And uh, when I heard what that was, I think it was that we never got any sequence of the Islanders in the pub fighting back. And surviving the fire, getting outside. And so I had to rewrite on the fly. I had to rewrite the ending, actually. That's another thing. There was lots of stuff that I had to to rewrite as we were going. I remember we had a a sequence with the car that we couldn't move it because there was two cars. One of them was a dummy car to be smashed up and the other one was actual, you know, you could turn the engine and drive it off the, the police jeeps. And they had put the wrong jeep in position so to swap it out was going to take about 30 minutes and we didn't have 30 minutes so it was cut from it was my favorite stuff in the script as well and it was cut from the script and um, I had to rewrite something on the fly on my phone and hand it to Lisa and she had to memorize it and then shoot it like right there in the moment. It works. It's not my favourite thing in the film. It's definitely not what I would have wanted. But, you know, a film is basically everybody's best compromise...
6: The fact that he's just a head You bring me someone With a head cold Or a headache And I could do something But you bring me just a head And you're taking the piss Jesus They could bury him In a shoebox
5: Doctor We need to know
0: That was the doctor's surgery But by the time You know He was framed Against He was framed Against a window And you could see The beautiful Donegal coast Out the window And I think For whatever reason There was a mistake Made and they had to reshoot it and when they reshot it, it it had gotten dark outside so they had to move him to the other side of the room and then it just doesn't look as visual there was a phone call that was meant to happen in the, in the doctor's surgery there we didn't get it
2: here's Tiger and Irene Murphy's house here's where the whale's washed up and we're here I was hoping it would show some sort of pattern where's the letter the letter's Z.
0: Wish I had this map. It Would have been a nice keepsake. I have a bottle from the film. And I have some coasters. And I have a pool ball for some reason. That's all I have as a keepsake. As well as my memories, of course. Big enough and strong enough to knock a hole in your bathroom wall.
4: Smith said it needs water, This
2: sequence coming up. I do remember this night quite vividly. This was a, a set piece that had been added to the schedule at the last moment, and Richard refused to do the stunt. I believe he called it akin to attempted murder. I was then asked to step into his shoes, and I hadn't read the script, so I wasn't aware of what they were intending, but I do remember being flabbergasted at the size of the puppet that had been constructed to the sequence. This is before, uh, before the production had moved to using visual effects. But this was a full-size puppet created with bike locks and chains, and it was strung together with cable wire and bungee cord, and that was attached then to a, a crane If you touched it, it was rock-hard, it was actually, you know, iron chains, solid. I believe they were used to anchor ships. In order to give the illusion of movement, this thing had to be whipped around in order to create the the visualization that the tentacles were, were moving and undulating. And because they were heavy, heavy chains, it had to be spun at a fierce force. The crane itself, I I believe it had to be bolted down. The director was very keen on getting everything in camera. And, of course, one hopes to sell the realism. And the only way to make it real is to actually do it. And in this sequence, I was to be attached to one of the chains. As if the grabber had grabbed me by the ankle. And it was going to whip me around in the air in order to murder me. I was wedged thirty-five foot into the air, and I was spun quite forcefully. A lot more forcefully than I think anyone expected, especially me. But I remember the roar, the roar of the generators. And I was going around and around and around, and I thought, bloody hell. This is going to look great on camera, I have to say. And I kept waiting for them to call action. And, of course, it just kept going faster and faster and faster. And I just remember hearing screams. Don't worry, Simon. You're going to be okay. You don't really notice what's happening to your body at that velocity. But I did dislocate both hips. I don't actually remember them calling action. Unfortunately, I blacked out. And I remember waking up and i was still spinning that's what i do remember everything was a blur there was all these lights going and oh and i was soaking (laughs) (laughs) and i was soaking wet of course and the vay machines weren't going so that was very confounding time, i do remember that and i tried to call out and i was saying you know anybody there Everybody, hello, hello, could everybody turn off this thing? <laughs> but of course I, I couldn't get the words out. I, the noise of the generators going and the clanging of the crane, no one could hear me, no one. And of course everybody had fled the set. And that was another thing which I wasn't aware of because I couldn't see anything. It was all going by so fast. It was like being in a car crash. And it just kept going and going. Of course, everybody on the set had fled because they were afraid they were going to get killed. That I was going to come fly off this thing and hit one of them. And of course, that could have happened. It very well could have happened. But, you know, as he said, things we do. I believe it was cut because the footage was unusable. So that was a terrible disappointment. And of course, after that, we used visual effects. I had the most blessed experience. Like, we didn't
0: make any fundamental changes to the script until. We were in the last stretch of uh, pre-production. And then there was quite a lot changed to take it from a £5 million film down to a £3.5 million film. And I was okay with most of those changes because I was getting to make them. So if somebody else had done them, I would probably be a little more sore about it because they're compromises that I think aren't an improvement, but they are necessary. But because I was able to do them, I felt like I could keep them within this personality and the tone and spirit of the film and that it would feel like um, it was a workaround that wouldn't sink the ship.
2: Ah, now, this is a sequence that I haven't revisited since we filmed it. And the reasons for that are this was the moment that changed the way that I look. I was tasked with stepping in for Richard, and it was for a sequence where the grabber that was located on the laboratory table was to leap up and attach itself to Richard's face. I was paid extra to do it, and... I was happy to do that. The puppet that they were using, they weren't prepared to slingshot it across the laboratory, as they didn't have a second hero puppet, but what they did have, and the craftspeople on this production, they were wonderful, really, really wonderful. And they were geniuses at what they did, magicians. This contraption that they were using in place of the hero puppet, they tested it out with a mannequin, and unfortunately it took the head off of the mannequin, straight off, went right through it. Of course, these mannequins were quite brittle and old, and they asked me would I be willing for some extra hazard pay to step in front of the catapult and take this to the face. And I said, you know, whatever you need, darling, I'm there. And I had a lot of the crew actually gather around to watch this. This is quite a thrilling moment for everybody. It was scheduled for the end of the week. And for the end of the shoot, actually. Because I believe they thought that this would be quite a big moment to go out on. The camera was to be over my shoulder. Filming as this thing leapt up and went rocketing towards my face. With not much time to go, they manufactured this wonderful-looking puppet that was made from ladies' stockings. I believe eight pairs of uh, ladies' nylons filled with rubber cement and bore bearings. And this was then placed upon a 2x4. And above the 2x4, from where I was standing, they hung a bag of cement. And they were going to drop the cement on the count of three. And that would land upon the 2x4 and it would send this stocking straight across the room towards me. Now, I don't remember filming the sequence. I do remember the preparation for it and I do remember the countdown and I remember the cement falling and I thought bloody hell, I'm glad I'm standing where I am because that hit you on the heads. god knows you'd be out for the count. Sadly, I don't think they used that footage in the film, as the camera was destroyed, smashed to bits. And now I'm standing in front of the camera, and I'm not sure what happened there, but I got that hazard pay, and I was glad to have it, let me tell you. 25 euro, that was a lot of money back then. I did end up missing the rap party, which was a terrible regret of mine, but apparently I had suffered multiple strokes. And they weren't sure that I was going to pull through. But I did, and it's a wonderful moment in the picture. And I'm so happy to have been a part of it.
0: We got rid of the teenagers from the script. There was two teenage characters in there. Uh, oftentimes, losing cast members is a great cost-saving measure. So we lost those characters There was a sequence where instead of the cave where the big grabber was found, it was a pit, a sort of a dugout pit in the sand. We lost that for the cave, which was easier to shoot. Uh, At the end, there was a golf course that was being built on the island. Um, And that was under construction. And there was a cement pit that was being, there was a sort of foundations that were being laid. And uh, at the end, the grabber was going to be buried in cement and dried out. And so Lisa, when she steps into mud at the the derelict site earlier on in the film, that was actually meant to be cement. She steps into wet cement. And later on in the pub, when she looks at her boots, she sees this crusted cement and she thinks, hang on a second. We could bury it in cement and they go back there. And of course, because these things need to be kept wet, the ultimate way to dry them out is to just bury them in cement. I didn't want to do them exploding into a fireball because I thought that's a bit too hackneyed and tropey. We couldn't do the cement thing, so that's what happened. It was also meant to be raining throughout that entire sequence and we couldn't turn on the rain machines because of the mud that was up there, that it was going to be a health and safety issue and that people would be slipping to their deaths because we were right on the side of like a quarry. Um... Those kind of changes where you, you know, they happen on every film, but I didn't mind them too much because I was writing them. But I had an incredibly fun, blessed experience. It's never happened again since. And I think because I had such a wonderful experience on this film that... The universe had to rebalance itself and think, okay, we're going to make everything else that he does incredibly torturous and frustrating and heartbreaking. (laughs) It's funny. I used to walk around that set and I would think to myself, soak it all in, soak it all in. And I think because I did that, I can transport myself right back there. And it feels like we were just there yesterday. This was a scene that when I wrote it, you know, I I talk about writing the whole thing in one go from beginning to end. But the first sequence that I wrote was the flip side of this scene that that happens later on in the bar where they're all, you know, showing what weapons they can muster. And um, that was the first thing I wrote. And I thought, yeah, I've got something here. Unfortunately, the character that had the most cut was Borna Gallagher's character. And it was nothing to do with her, the performance, it had to do with the schedule again. This is why making films has become so difficult because you need more time to get everything that you've written. So, oftentimes, her stuff would be at the end of um, a setup. And we just run out of time. We wouldn't get to it. She had a, a line that used to crack me up, where she looked down at the pub after seeing all the little grabblings sort of make their make a mess. and she said, "Oh my God, look at the state of the carpets." <laughs> it was funny around the page. This scene here now was done in one take. We were losing the light, as I think you can kind of see. It had been cut down from about five pages to two and a half. In fact, for the majority of the film, it was about three takes. John used to do this thing, John, the director. He would shoot one as scripted. The second one would be heavily improvised. And the third one would be would be back to the script. And they would pull in anything that they'd improvised. Uh I remember the first editor of the film actually used an awful lot more of the improvised scenes. And one of the people from the UK FC said, put it back, put back what was on the script. Because that's what we we wanted. That's what we backed. And so they had to do that. That's very gratifying, isn't it? That the producers said, no, 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 no. Stick to the script. The script is what we liked. (laughs) I remember it. This line here, a bird never flew on one wing. I remember Lawlor coming up to me and saying, I love the I love the dialogue. And that was a line that my granddad used to say. And I said to Lawlor, Oh, thanks. That was all me. But it wasn't, I just borrowed it from my granddad. A bird never flew on one wing. The nice thing about the film is that it doesn't look dated. The fastest way to date your film is to use technology. If they were holding phones now and I had it in the script at one stage where O'Shea says has anybody got a phone on them? And everybody takes out two. Those would have been like Motorola phones at, at this stage. 2010 phones. Or those little tiny little iPhones. And then you would have immediately thought, oh, this is an old movie. But now it looks like this could have been shot two years ago. Roots, Lisa, is a formidable character and she's really the protagonist of the story. And she doesn't require saving at any stage. In fact, she's the one that saves O'Shea. And uh, that was, you know, scripted and that was what I intended. I didn't want to have... Her be a damsel. Um, She's a foil, but in so much as that for the first half of the script, O'Shea is a foil for her. And I liked being able to flip their characters in the second half of the script. One of the things though that I had written into it that changed because of the chemistry that that Lisa and O'Shea had or Richard and, and Ruth had was that I saw them more as buddies and i wanted this to be a buddy comedy and it became more flirtatious you know we had a lot of trouble on the set you know with rats and birds
1: and cats and drugs and drunk people fighting each other or all sorts of crazy shit i can't even get into for liability reasons but the most destructive thing you can have on a set is a fucking writer
0: I remember John Landis read the draft that I had written before we went into production and he said, there's one thing I don't believe and that is that they could round up all the island to come because I had all of them making phone calls and rounding people up and saying there was going to be a free lock-in at the bar and to, to definitely come. And he said, that's the only thing I don't believe. So then I thought, well, what the hell am I going to do in order to get everybody rounded up in a way that is economical and doesn't become an extended sequence and add so much more into the schedule. And I thought, okay, well, it's set at the weekend. So, you know, you saw at the beginning where the families are going away for the long weekend. Then they are gone to mass. It's Saturday night. It's Saturday evening mass. So therefore, they're going to go to the church and tell everybody to come straight from the church down to the pub. By doing that, we ended up with the ubiquitous Irish priest in an Irish film. But it was the, the most economical way that I could think of. To explain how they got everybody into the pub without having to do many, many, you know, location jumps. So I changed that because of what John Landis had said. Scott,
5: I was one of the alcoholics Boston. I've never seen never seen I never seen i could not even get a ticket to the premiere No I was he's gone could you believe that? I was I I drank myself fucking sick I was fucking I I think I was hungover for about three months after so and they were starving as piss it was that foreign piss We couldn't get a decent bite out of them but oh (laughs) fucking hell. I was supposed to go cracking all over the Do you know, do you know I never saw one there's the fucking grabber? I, I don't know why. I don't know why we were all to be fucking scared of There was no fucking grabber. There, there was not. I didn't see a fucking grabber for the whole fucking time I was on the film. I, I was looking around, I was looking out. I was fishing, I was fishing, Fishman something, I can't remember. Name though. Everybody here now is genuinely having the crack.
0: They were playing music on set, they were all, <laughs> This is where the film comes alive. <laughs> I love for it just swinging the point. This was the first thing I wrote. This scene and I thought, yeah, I've got I've got something here. I have to I have to keep writing this film because this was
5: cracking me up. I wrote lines and they all got cut out. They cut I cut every fucking line of me. Every fucking line that I had to say it was cut. I, I half my lines were just I had to I did let a fucking bell show me. That was it. I don't know what it was. But the load of the alcoholics they were fucking wandering off and you couldn't fucking find them when you needed them. So the continuity was fucked fucked. But
0: what was it telling you anyway? As much as there's stuff in the film that does make me cringe, I'm actually charmed by the film. And I was dreading doing this commentary because I thought this is gonna be quite painful. What kind
1: of cop doesn't have a gun? I said. The writer says to me, he says, We don't have guns in Ireland. I'm like, Buddy, I've seen the fucking news. I know where I am. You motherfuckers are shooting each other every goddamn weekend. What are you talking about? You don't have guns. He said, Those are terrorists, not cops. I said, Buddy, we're not making a fucking documentary here. It's a film. You gotta give the people what they want, you know? And the people want fucking guns. You couldn't give these guys any notes. They think they know it all. I said to him, have you sold a movie before? No, you've not. So shut up and sit down.
0: I saw the relationship between O'Shea and Lisa as like a buddy comedy. And everything that you see in the the script is as it was. There's no change. The only difference was... That at the end of the film, they kiss, and in the script, they don't kiss. There was no kiss at all. They, they had the same dialogue. They, you know, they're walking along together, but I left it so that if there was to be a kiss, it would happen after the film. And maybe it happened, maybe it didn't happen. But yeah, I love the chemistry between the two of them. I love this very tender moment.
1: Okay, if there's no guns in Ireland, point to me where there's fucking aliens. You're not dealing with serious people here. But, you know, I acquiesced and we ended up not using guns in the picture. A big mistake, I think. We would have added about 50 million to the box office if everybody had a fucking gun. You could take that to the bank. Unfortunately, I can't go into a bank anymore. My credit's through the fucking floor because of this.
0: So one of my favorite films of all time and the one where I had almost a religious out-of-body experience is Jurassic Park. And of course, in Jurassic Park, they're sat in a Jeep in the rain until the T-Rex comes. And that was a big inspiration for me. I saw Jurassic Park when I was 12. And I remember walking out of the cinema and thinking, I want to do that, whatever that is. I want to be a filmmaker. I want to make films. I want to make films like Jurassic Park. And no matter what else, I at least got to make this a reality. It's a movie about fucking aliens and
1: they're complaining to me about guns. They want to keep it realistic. What are you talking about? The fucking aliens come out of the sky and the people get drunk and that's the movie. Give them some fucking guns it'd be fun. But you know, you come to a compromise. I took the writer to lunch and I banned them from the set.
0: That was the end of that, you know? This is where the film really comes alive for me. And as I said, this was the stuff that people were paying to to see. So I wanted more of this and there was a lot more of it in the script. But we had to shoot everything you see at night around the pub. And there's a lot of sequences to happen, you know, between the, the Jeep getting smashed up, the big grabber turning up, them jumping out the window and speeding off. The doctor getting killed, Smith getting flicked away off the island, Brian coming up with a super soaker, ray machines going. This was shooting split days. So we were shooting in the morning time, the stuff at the lab, the stuff with the doctor at the surgery, and then going to lunch and coming back and shooting for another four or five hours, the night stuff. So everything you see outside the pub was shot in about 20 hours. You know, I've never
1: worked on a picture where everything has gone the way you want. Hyde sights 50 50. Most movies I work on, they're a piece of shit. This ain't that. It ain't Lawrence a Utopia, but it ain't a piece of shit.
0: It was five nights, and they weren't full nights. They were like from half four to nine o'clock. Why are you drinking so much, Karen? It's a miracle that we got as much as we got. And And one of my favourite sequences got cut and I remember trying to convince the director not to cut it and to shoot it a certain way because it was going to get a big laugh. Because it was in my head that it had to look this way and it would just land, the punchline would land. And it was cut and I remember him walking over to the monitor and he was avoiding looking at me. Because he knew that uh, he, we'd spent months and months of me like, saying, please, please don't cut that. That's a trailer moment. You have to have that. And it was basically Lisa. She gets behind the wheel of the Jeep. She's pissed drunk. We've been building up to it. So you have a, a policewoman who's drunk driving a police Jeep. And there was so much more action and japes that happened with the big grabber and her ramming into it and driving the wrong way, driving into it. And it's, you know, almost swallowing the car. And one of the little ones got into the backseat. This was all like the stuff that, you know, the film comes alive. And I remember seeing this with an audience, actually, one of the early screenings. And the people would lean forward in their seats because they can feel it coming. It's in the script, it's building up. And then it wouldn't happen. The Jeep wouldn't start and I could just feel everybody like sort of like oh I thought we were going to get into fifth gear and we're still in third so that bothered me I'm allowed to say that I'm allowed to say that that bothered me anyway I had to keep a brave face on and not let anybody know that I was absolutely crushed that we had just thrown away the best sequence in the film One of the best sequences.
2: Now, this is a moment in the film that gets a very big reaction from audiences. I remember seeing this with a sold-out crowd in a back alley theater in Japan. And they're very big fans over there of tentacle pictures. They were vibrating in their seats, and they would scream. These orgasmic screams, you know. They were just so enthralled and touched, you know, very, very touched and moved. Everyone was taking out hankies and tissues, you know, so they found the ending very moving. So that was very gratifying, you know, and uh, unforgettable. I'm still thrilled to bits with the film.
0: You know, I'm very, very proud of it. As much as I'm almost mortified to watch it, I love these little things. They were called jumpers in the script, but in the end, I prefer the name Grablings. And I would have called them that if if I thought of it during the scripting process. So I went grabbers and jumpers. But I prefer grabbers and grablings now. So they're little grablings. And they're modelled on the fleshlight. The director was very keen on adding this suggestive, disgusting, sexualised imagery. And, uh... I hadn't thought of that so he wanted the mouth of the grabbers to look like an anus and I was like oh no okay I thought it more like a saw blade the visual effects still hold up now you gotta remember it's probably about minus three and none of the actors are in wetsuits and this is heavy heavy rain and it's bucketing down on top of them and we have to lightly towel them down. And i got to go again. And again. And again. It was miserable. Yet everybody was still having the crack. It looks so cool actually. I think I described it as like a spaghetti slinky. So this sequence here where she's banging on the steering wheel. And freaking out. That's all a compromise. And... I hate it. I hate it I hate it because she would not be that freaked out she'd be much more well the way that I wrote her is that she's overly confident because she's drunk and she's like he's like get us out of here and she's like oh okay okay and then she drives backwards into the creature and there was more here with Brona Gallagher as well now I'm starting to sound like I'm complaining, but I'm not. I love this sequence. This is where it captures the energy of what I wanted for much of the second half of the script. Although I kind of like tried to, to modify it so that it didn't become overbearing and you didn't feel like this was bedlam and screamy. I don't like that in horror films. I don't. There's two things I don't like in horror films. One is when characters are always arguing with each other. I find that incredibly um, forced and unnecessary, and it's sort of like a lazy way to create conflict. So there's nobody in that. There's nothing like that in Grabbers where everybody gets leery and, and aggressive and like, you should have said blah, blah, blah. They're all much more communicative, sensible, empathetic, and just decent people that it's like, I get you, okay, right, fuck, okay, well, let's figure this out. That makes me... Root for everybody, whereas if there are editors' throats, I just think, "Fuck off! I'll die, just die! I'm sick of you." Um, it's so strange looking at the film though after all these years. I love how cosy the bar looks, and this was a set in Belfast, where Troy. And O'Shea, you know, he has a drink issue. And he'd love now to just drown his sorrows. That's what he's been doing. But instead, he's going to literally step up. He's been doing his best, he's been keeping people going. I like when characters are in direct conflict with the concept. So, this is where everybody has to get drunk to survive. But he has to get sober to survive and to keep everybody alive. So, it's about him finding himself again. Because he's dealing with a blow to his ego and a broken heart. And he just doesn't feel like he's got a purpose anymore. And he doesn't know really that he's got it. And he's tested. And then the same thing happens to Lisa where she feels like she's never good enough. She's inadequate. And then when she just makes all these mistakes and it's fine and she doesn't lose sight of who she is, that she's actually more than her achievements and her accomplishments. She doesn't need to overcompensate that she's enough and that she can, you know, be messy and let her hair down and... and be a f- screw up it's not going to define her and i wanted that in there as a counterpoint because i didn't want this to feel like um i was commenting on drink culture and saying drink is bad
2: anyhow for this sequence i had just been discharged from hospital i can't remember who discharged me because i was still comatose but i remember coming on to set and i had a wheelchair which was lovely You know, usually on a film set, you're just standing around, and there's a lot of waiting, you know. So to have a wheelchair, it was marvellous. And when I wheeled onto the set, I saw that they were setting up a trebuchet. And a trebuchet, for anyone out there who doesn't know what that is, it's like a military slingshot. You know, they would have used it now in the Roman times. And it would send a projectile over the battlefield, usually a rotting carcass, or some sort of flaming ball of fat. And I thought... Wow, where'd they get that from? But of course they'd manufactured it from an old burned-out car, some shopping trolleys, at a swing set. And they said, okay, Saibon, we're ready for you. We just need you to sit here in this trebuchet, and we're going to launch you over the harbor and into the sea. We have the Coast Guard alerted, so they're expecting you. So it was an easy job for me, really, because all I had to do was survive. So they winched me out of my wheelchair and uh, they placed me in this trolley and I believe this was because they needed to have a reference shot of a carcass being flung up into the air as was going to happen to the character of Smith in the film. Of course, it replaced all of the footage that I shot with a digital recreation. But that digital recreation was based on my carcass. So I was sat in the trolley and the set was cleared. Everybody took cover, uh, you know, for health and safety reasons. And just before they're about to pull the lever, one of the special effects wizards came and said, Have you weighed him? You know, because I had been losing a lot of weight on this production. Because once you're on heavy painkillers, you tend to lose your appetite and get quite bunged up. So I was down to about six stone, I think, at this point. and it had been counterweighted for somebody who weighed double vet so they (laughs) 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 so they filled my pockets with rocks And it was a lot of rocks, I remember that, because I couldn't actually sit up in the trolley. And Midge was the one, that's right, now I remember. Midge was the one that cut the rope with the machete. And that set me flying off, you know, rocketing into the air. And I remember I went very high, very, very, very high, And that's right. I remember everything got quiet apart from my screaming, you know, and that's an involuntary response. You can't control that. It's not like diving into a pool, we'll say. It's more like belly flopping onto concrete. They did give me a life jacket, which was nice of them, and I had to blow into it. But of course, with a collapsed lung, that's quite hard to do. And, of course, with all the rocks in my pockets, it was very hard to keep my head above water for the rest of the night. But uh, as an actor, you know, we're used to that. So the Coast Guard did eventually find me. I remember the sun was coming up and I had hypothermia. But we ended up being able to use that shot twice in the picture. Once as reference footage for the carcass, and the other for the meteorite crashing into the ocean at night. So everybody was happy, and I got to stay in hospital some more.
0: So the themes of the story, you know, they they have to be there for me to feel like I have a reason to tell this. So it's not just a skit.
5: Do you know, this is a very fucking long film. Is this? this? Is this the director's cut? It's very long. It's been, I, 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 I. There was
0: actually a sheep that was built and it was quite funny to see it being swung at the door and it was calling back to what happened with uh, uh, Cooney where he was being used as bait, but it looked so terrible that they cut it. There's a few things that were shot that didn't look right, so they got cut for that reason. There was a character in it, she's one of the, the characters that stands up in the church and and I think she says it's a free bar or something like that, where she goes up to Brian, and Brian is trying to... He's he's trying to compliment her on her weight in order to figure out what she does weigh to be able to give her the right measurements of, of beer because he wants to get them drunk enough, but he doesn't want to kill them. And him sort of trying to suss out how, she, how much she weighs was quite funny, and that got cut because... I don't think that the actor sold it as well as the director wanted it to be sold. What do you mean? We need to keep it away from the water. Dry it out somehow. Look outside. There's got to be some way we can
5: stop it. Fight fire with
0: fire. So here she looks at her boots, and that was meant to be cement. But I don't think it comes across. I don't think you you get what's going on here.
1: You know, sometimes I think to myself, knowing what I know, would I have made the same choices? Would I have made this picture today? Probably not, you know, probably not. I don't get parole till 2028. So it's unlikely, you know, but it's still a good script. I read it again the other day before we came in here. It's a good script, you know, good, good script. I don't know why we change so much still think we should have had fucking guns. Absolutely
0: not. I remember this, this actor coming up to me and saying, can I ask you a question? Why did you call him Father Potts? And I said, "Um, it was just a name that didn't clash with any other name. So it, it stuck out. And when you're naming characters, you don't want to have any that sort of sound the same or that they feel similar. No, it's too dangerous. So it's like Cooney, O'Shea, Lisa, Brian, Una, Father Potts. They don't clash with each other, but they feel of a whole. So I don't think he was happy with that answer, but that was genuinely the, the reason. I just felt like it was distinctive enough it would do. This sequence here always got the biggest reaction from an audience. And I think because it's tangible, I think everybody feels... It's like when you see somebody get a paper cut. That almost stings more than seeing somebody get cut in half with a machete. So yeah, every time she accidentally pulled the trigger, the audience would gasp. An old classic trick of the stunt woman falls down the stairs. And... It's funny though, it works. I love this sequence. And this is where I wanted to make sure that Lisa... She's the the drunkest of the lot of them, so course she has to be the one that they all have to rely on, because that's great comedy, and um, it's one of my favourite sequences in the film.
1: How
0: we make a dummy? Improvise. Of course, this is hearkening back to Gremlins Where Phoebe Cates is dealing with all the gremlins in the bar. We don't see what happens to them, but what was in the script is that the islanders upstairs, that's their battle. They have to deal with all these guys. They have to beat the shit out of them with pool cues and, you know, uh, golf clubs and bike locks and stuff. But again, you get what you get. in the script this was an Irish song that was meant to play it was something like Galway Girl or something like that Um, and they couldn't get the rights to it so I don't know what shit they're playing on the jukebox so you see the beginnings here of the Islanders sort of tooling up and then you never see the payoff of that that's not sloppy screenwriting let me assure you that is Slappy production. So this was the sequence where I felt I hit a wall. I wrote myself into a corner where I felt like there's no way they're going to survive this. They have all gathered in one location and now the place is on fire. How are they going to get out of it? And I, I took about a week to ten days, I think, where I don't pens, and I just kept thinking about it, thinking and thinking and thinking. What am I gonna do? I knew that it had to, we had to get to this point, but I did not know how we were gonna get out of it. Brona had a lot more from this moment on that we didn't get, unfortunately. I'm sure. <laughs> I remember writing that and I couldn't believe they actually did it. This is one of the great joys of being a writer. There are very few, let me tell you. But it is, it's such a wonderful feeling to write something and be the first person in the world to experience it. To hope that people, as I said earlier, see it the same way you do and and enjoy what you're putting out there. So when you see that people have gone through all this effort to render what I wrote, to take my imagination and put it on the screen, um, it's magical. You just feel like, I cannot believe. What a gift. That's the stuff that you just keep chasing as a writer. It's like, I'd love to see that again. Just love to see something I wrote. Yeah, see, they were making... Oh, that's right, they were making a dummy to distract it and that they did actually follow through with that but we don't actually see them follow through with it I remember the temp score for this was ET you know as they're escaping on their bicycles and it was brilliant it was so exciting (laughs) couldn't we have gotten John Williams to uh, loan us that music. But I still... One of my favourite things about the film is Christian score action. When I look at it now, I wonder whether we would even want to cut back to the pub. But I felt it was necessary to... Um, See the the islanders have their own battle, so it was meant to be still raining through all of this, and one of the location managers said, "Like we just can't do it; it'll turn into like a swamp." And with crews lugging equipment and lights and stuff, and the camera and stuff, we're just—it's too dangerous. And this, we shot this. We had a break over Christmas, so we shot up until. I think we started production in November and we shot up until December 20th. Blizzard hit. We lost a few days at the end of the schedule. And we had a break built in. It looks great though, the set. We had a break built in over Christmas. And we were to come back and we were to shoot this, the rest of it, in. I think late January, early February. And I had written the stuntman I'm jumping all over the place now the stuntman that just did that scene a sequence that jump I remember uh, you know you're, you're, when you're a writer you're really just like wandering all over the set and I said to the stuntman what have you been up to like what stunts have you done um, his supervisor said Here, show him his, your chest and he lift up his chest this guy's ripped you now he's like a fucking Muay Thai guy and his chest was just black And it was from that jump that you just saw. And I thought, and you guys padded up. And he's like, yeah, but it still hurts. And I thought, I thought being a stuntman is like, you know how to do the stunts without getting hurt. It's like, no, no, no. Our job is to get hurt when we do the stunt. And still get the stunt, you know? So here we go. So in another movie, this would be Lisa that's getting injured. And O'Shea has to save her but I wanted to spread it evenly between the two of them. The Jesse P here that you see, I got
3: a load of that off a family that I know up the road. I swore up and down. I said, you know what? We're going need it for a couple of hours. I mean, life to Jesus. Nothing bad will happen to it. We only need it for a couple of hours. And should they took it and they drove it into a fucking ditch. They drove the fucking thing into a ditch and I didn't know that at all. I thought they were just going to dig a hole with it, but should they fucking threw it into a ditch and they left it there and it sat in that ditch for three fucking months. And I had to keep making excuses to him. I was like, Oh, yeah, I'm on my way up there now. I'll drop it in there. And, uh, oh, God. So he did it for the fucking fair. And I, I didn't know what to tell him. So I just, you know, I did a fucking runner. I had to go. I couldn't show my face. I was fucking fight. And I couldn't say to him, Do you know where your JCB is now? It was in the bottom of a fucking ditch. And they set a light to it and they blew it to fucking bits. But I couldn't say that to him, you know. Because he, he was going to fucking take the head off me. But you know, it all worked out in the end because he went out of business and long after that and sure, he was one of those bachelor farmers. So he was wreaking a depression and so didn't he end up blowing his own head off with a shotgun? So that was grand then, you know, I didn't have to worry about Squared and anything
0: there. So it all worked out in the end. Over the Christmas, I had to rewrite the ending to make sense of the fact that it was no longer raining. So I had obviously set up that the rules of the grabber were that it only comes out when it's raining. So essentially, this is like a vampire movie that's taking place during the daylight. I was like, well, you're breaking the fundamental rules of the creature here because it it has to be wet. And I thought, oh, we're fucking screwed. Like, everyone's going to realise we've just broken our own rules. And uh, nobody really noticed. Or if they did, they never said anything. But I thought, well, you've got to figure out something else. If it's not going to be cement that it gets buried in, and I thought, well, I'll just go back to the alcohol. We'll have Paddy's Puccine. That's pure alcohol. Chuck down in this move. Have oh, a drink.
5: Shut your hole.
0: And the other thing I had to do over this Christmas break is I had to come up with some sort of kiss offline because now they were going to blow it up. So I needed to come up with my smile, your son of a bitch line. And I thought, Jesus, that's hard. There's so many kiss off lines. What's going to be one that feels distinctly Irish and doesn't call attention to itself? It doesn't feel like it's knowing or winking? And I shut your hole felt like, yeah, she would say that. A lot of crossfades. And this is a scene that I... Wrote Because Laura came up to me and said, we didn't get the moment where the Islanders are fighting off the Grablings. And I thought, oh shit, okay, well then I'll write some sort of fix. And this was shot by the second unit guy. And I like it, it's a reconciliation between the two characters that had, you know, the most scenes bashing heads. But I still think we needed a moment with the Islanders fighting off the Grablings, because where are they? Where are the Grablings? I had them bashing all their heads in. This scene is as written aside from the kiss no imagine the film playing it without the kiss would it have been better? I think it would have felt more refreshing because you think they're they're two best mates they know see each other on a different level. They have respect for each other They like each other They're going to become a great partnership Adding the kiss felt to me like I didn't set that up to happen And it feels like a leap It's a very passionate kiss Very fucking passionate You almost feel embarrassed to be watching it It's like Jesus He's really going for it I don't know I winced. I was like, oh God, a kiss, guys. I don't know. I, don't, I, I would have loved for them to just be buddies. Can they be buddies? And then you can suggest that they end up in a relationship. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. But I, for once, I'd love to see a guy and a girl be best mates. That was my intention. And all these forces that be said, no, it's got to end with a kiss. We've got to have an explosion. It's got to end with a kiss. We've got to have the ship at the beginning or the boat at the beginning. Ah uh, well And then this was added in as well Although this was also in my script So I had suggested that the grablings They had little chicken feet I remember in my script They were like tap The reverse of a tap They had legs that then fell off And so you saw footprints Heading to the water And then the water washed away the footprints This works as well I suppose it's cleaner. And of course, this setup. Grabbers 2. Can't wait for that. There he is. Look at him. Tracy and Kate. It's such a great experience with them. Martina. Brilliant. Those are the American guys. So, God. This was a trip for me. Uh, Grabbers came out 10 years ago to the day in the US. It's a lovely little film. I'm proud that it exists and that my name is attached to it. It had an awful struggle to get there. I now know how difficult it is to get anything made. Listen, thanks a million for listening to me waffle on by myself on this commentary. We've had some special guests pop up, uh, you know, people that worked on the film, uh, allegedly. I hope you've enjoyed the contributions from them as well. I certainly have. So this was Grabbers and I can't wait for Grabbers too. Take care, everybody. And here's to the next 10 years, whatever they may be.
4: And here is a clip from the lads' latest mini-bits bonus show. The full episode, plus 100 more, are available on their Patreon.
0: Mini-bits. Another, Another new episode.
2: episode.
6: Tuck a Of this Patreon
0: podcast.
6: How are you? Hi honey How are you? Oh you know I've got this I've got my corn sorted I went to the Trap this the other day and uh, she your said Your corn? To, uh, my corns Do you, you ever get corns? No Do you know what a corn is? Yeah it's a bunion on your foot isn't it? Yeah like in between your toes stuff like that Do, um, you,
0: do you not wear any shoes like around the house you walk No Barefoot.
6: I, I, I wear no it's the opposite GA shorts It's the opposite I wear incredibly tight shoes Like those Chinese women who get their feet bound, who had their feet bound, like, you know, before the turn of this last century. And so they had incredible corns and bunions. This is a great opener for a Mini Bits episode where we get people disgusted.
0: Squally, it's episode 73 of the Mini (laughs) Bits. I'm Kevin, you're Will. This is our Patreon podcast. Thank you to all our lovely patrons. A few of you have jumped in recently. I don't know what we said. We try to people into joining up every single episode and then every so often it's like a lot of people join because of one specific episode and yeah. I'm like what did we how did we say it what did we say on that episode it's different <laughs> to the other 270
6: episodes maybe it didn't Go. sound as desperate maybe we said don't jo-. maybe may- reverse psychology that's how we should do it reverse psychology don't join up to our patron don't it's <laughs> You cancel. don't des- everybody cancel. You don't deserve to be in this group. We don't want you. We don't we like don't the look need you. you.
0: We don't. We don't need anybody.
6: <laughs> it's just us. It's absolutely just us. Hey, should we tell people, we we did? I don't know. Maybe we shouldn't say it on mic, especially sorely. We did an interview with the Irish Examiner last Friday. We did. Yeah. And uh, how do you think yeah. I? How do you think I did?
0: I, I, I think you did all right. Like you didn't interrupt me once. So I was <laughs> delighted with how I came across. But, you know, there's no sort of time limit on this. We don't know when it's going to get posted. One of our friends was saying, Kathy at the cinema was saying that their interview with, did they do the Examiner as well? It was six uh, months yeah. before it posted. And,
6: and the Guardian, I'm pretty sure. They were they are profiled in the Gar- Guardian as well. Yeah, but we don't do any really promotion. Like nah. we don't do anything. Well, this is our first time getting any sort of like proper coverage, which is going to be mad. So, um, uh, listen to all you listeners who have uh, found us before we explode. You're you're you're, you're an OG. Bust. You're an OG <laughs> listener before Kevin starts getting gold chains <laughs> from all his <these laughs> Patreon. dash.
0: I think I'm more of a silver than a gold. I think oh, yeah. my uh, undertones suit more silver. But uh, yeah.
6: I just want to die Goes with my
0: Prince Albert (laughs) Your hat?
6: (laughs) Yeah Speaking of of which I want one of those diamond studs in my tooth That's all I want So I can go bing Whenever I'm on a call Oh yeah Bing I usually just You know Wink and like Ding Yeah Starlight twinkle (laughs) Speaking of which I interrupted you What did did you want to speak of Which Start the time Oh I forgot. So you may we as well. just the timer. They,
0: all, all these lucky losers are listening in and, and they're wondering, what are we going to be talking about? But we have to start talking about them after yeah. we, we say goodbye. But look, I wanted to talk to you about, um, well, you've seen a few things. You've seen the new Godzilla film. Yes. I've seen the first Omen. Uh, I saw Scoop as well. That, oh, uh, we're looking Netflix
6: forward to watching that. Okay. Okay.
0: I'll save my thoughts. And right. um what else did I see? I made notes, but sure, it, it doesn't is. really matter. I think I saw it, And I was going to go through all the summer releases and see what oh, takes your fancy.
6: Okay, okay. I'm looking forward because I don't actually know what's what's on the horizon. So um, I'm Well, the Joker to
0: 2 trailer came out today.
6: I saw it. Yes, I watched that.
0: Mm-hmm. It reminded me of Chicago.
6: Yeah, it's kind of like you see it's all very much in the mind's eye. It, they're calling it a jukebox musical. Am I right in saying that? I think you're right in saying that. So look, hey, listen, I, uh, I actually, what, it, what it did remind me of <laughs> was that I want to watch, rewatch the Joker because I saw it in the cinema and I thought it was fine. I thought it was fine. It was kind of a bold new direction. Uh, I'm just going to go
0: back and watch the episodes from the Batman 66 show, the Joker episodes.
6: Oh yeah, that's going to be just to. Fill gets, me in like on the lower you know, get up to gets, speed. Get you right up to speed. <laughs> and you'll be there going, Where where are all the guys in the purple suits with the masks? Where when are they gonna show up? And it's like it's you a little know, weird time though, where we have
0: the Penguin TV show with Colin Farrell coming out, which is a totally different canon version of the Penguin. Then you have this offshoot of Joker, which isn't its own universe entirely.
6: Mm. Uh,
0: and then you have the old Batman films that you can watch. Right. And, uh, I don't know where I'm going with this, but it's just I don't know. I'm kind There's of so many... IP.
6: But like just, just everywhere. What well what's happened is the world, the comic book world has very much entered the the film world. It's where you could have different runs, totally different runs of a character by it's different insane. authors. And there'd be totally different riffs on it and stuff. Oh, oh this just is the insane. thing. Kevin, <laughs> so I'm only catching up on this. You mentioned it to me on a on a pod on a podcast. Wait, was it on one of those? Uh, it was the last show? It was the last mini bits. Yeah, uh, you, s- you said everyone's describing stuff as insane recently. And have you started noticing it though? Only, only, only with people trying to rise you. That's the only type, only where place where I've noticed people no, people on Discord are trying every, to rise. Oh you. my
0: god! Oh my god! I could start posting now like um, tweets, comments, TikToks. Uh, articles, anything Insane is everywhere This is insane That's insane It's insane There was a festival just going on About this insane lineup I okay. was like Oh it's a mentally ill lineup Okay <laughs> It's just it's, it's everywhere And the other th- Do you know the other thing That's also bothering me Lately wow. wow. And this has been bothering me For years and years and years It used to be that everyone Used to misspell definitely They'd go defiantly Okay Oh, it's defiantly Whatever They were just They were morons But no I just keep noticing everyone keeps spelling a lot as one word, A-L-O-T, a lot. Where, has, where have they gotten into their heads that a lot is one word? It's the same way that people will write every time as one word.
6: What's the one that you've, you've pulled me up on a few times and I can't get it right? Compliment. Compliment. I can't, <laughs> but I can't get it right. It's like the but you I because I told you the other day. Yeah, and I went searching for it and I couldn't find it because I had to actually had an, to use it. If there's an I in compliment, it's yeah. I'm paying you
0: uh, a compliment.
6: That's a good way to remember it. Okay, good. And then compliment I, I wrote that too. You. But you did, did, and I went to try and find it because I was I would found myself writing the word compliments. And I went, shit, Kevin. But, I, but you, you gave me a thumbs up, which meant in my world that yeah, I read that. Thanks. But I did, right? I'm talking about a couple of days later when I was faced with the exact same hurdle of writing the word compliment I went okay what did Kevin say again about compliment there's an I in the E what did he say so I went searching for it and I found it I think and I went oh the I is paying me a compliment or I'm giving you a compliment it's insane
0: how little you can retain information it's insane
6: (laughs) (laughs) come here let's start talking about what we watched come on did you start the timer yeah, it's it's gone. It's ticking. It's ticking down. The world's going oh, to explode. You know, I have to put in the sound effect. I have to. I have to line oh. up all well, my sound effects. When you said start I the the
1: timer, like, I have a whole fucking. I have a whole soundboard. Yeah. Okay. Like, Jesus Christ! Where's my fucking?
6: What? where's my Ding dang ding! Here we go. The timer has started. There we go. There we go. <laughs> yeah. Right. Okay. Right.